0: Hello and welcome to Martian Driving Podcast 149. My name is Terry Frost and this time around we're doing a couple of movies from the late great 1990s. The first one is an adaptation of a Japanese anime and it's The Giver, which stars Mark Hamill and a lot of people you've never heard of. Then we get on to a weird movie from 1990. Class of 1999 starring Stacey Keach. Malcolm McDowell and Pam Greer. Both of them are crazily on point for early 1990s cinema, particularly genre cinema, and they're kind of weird as well. Uh, lots of uh, practical effects and lots of, and some really bad clothing choices in both movies. So sit back, I'll get the contact details out of the way, and then we'll whip back almost 30 years. Wow, almost 30 years to the early 1990s for these two films. Martian Drive-In podcast happens every two weeks. It's a podcast of science fiction, fantasy and horror appreciation. Sometimes I have guests in, sometimes I'll have a round table. Sometimes it's just random, particularly when there's a Netflix Marvel Cinematic Universe thing coming up. Feedback is the bread and butter of podcasting, so you can put feedback through at the Paleo Cinema Cafe on Facebook. You can also email feedback to... Feedback paleo, P-A-L-E-O, at gmail.com. You can also support the podcast at patreon.com by going to patreon.com slash paleocinema for as little as a dollar a week. Uh, just be aware when you're listening to the podcast, there may be some naughty words in it, so if there are kids around, you might want to listen to it later on. Okay, so how's everyone been? How's January and late February, or early February? treated you um we've been kind of okay here doing a few things uh doing lots of creative stuff i'm working on a big youtube video about the history of australian cinema because i always bite off more than i can chew and i've been playing around with photography and cameras and all that sort of thing gearing up for the big japan trip it's also been uncommonly hot here uh we got up to 46 degrees where i live in uh, the southwest of melbourne the other day And it didn't happen when I first moved to Melbourne around 1990. And I was kind of thinking about it. And climate change isn't, I mean, we knew it was going to happen, unless you were a total idiot and didn't believe the science and didn't listen to the right people. We knew this shit was coming. But we didn't know at a grassroots domestic level what it was going to feel like. For instance, I've got friends who live in Townsville in North Queensland. They copped well over a meter of rain the other day. A meter of rain in the area. And the local dam, which was, you know, about half full when all this shit started, is now at 240% capacity because they got really unusual and unprecedented rain events up there. A couple of thousand homes are gonna get flooded in the next twenty four hours. And it's all gone terribly crazy there. Meanwhile we got we've got forty six degree dry temperatures here. And um, the weird thing about the climate change, at least as far as it relates to this Australian summer, is the top half of the country is crazy wet. Bottom half of the country is bone dry and warm, warmer than it needs to be. And uh, Tasmania, which is normally a very green and damp and um, cooler part of Australia, the middle of it's on fire. So at that kind of yeah, drilled down level, things are are a lot scarier than we thought they were. And, of course, up in the Northern Hemisphere, you have the polar vortex hitting Europe and the USA and Canada, which is a kind of cold I've never experienced. Most I've had experience, and it was very, very briefly when I was in New Zealand, is, I think, minus 8 degrees centigrade, and I didn't like it. For a start, none of my clothing at the time, this was 1988, none of my clothing was suited to a temperature of minus 8 degrees And, um, yeah, it felt strange and alien and uncomfortable for that reason. It was just something that was outside of my experience. Of course, now there are crazy temperatures, like parts of the Northern Hemisphere this week were colder than Mars or Antarctica which is you know, a pretty clear indication that we've got to do some shit here. We've got to get some things reorganised in order not to slowly poach ourselves to death. We've already got climate refugees starting to appear in the world. And in Australia, there's a, a possum up in North Queensland where it got very unusually hot for them. It's a tropical place, but they'd never get above a certain temperature. Uh, there's a kind of white possum that lives up in North Queensland, which may well be the first mammal in Australia to go extinct because of climate change, because things just got really, really hot. They've had other problems. They've had them here in Melbourne too. Fruit bats um, were just dropping off the trees dead because of the temperatures, both in northern Queensland and here in Melbourne as well. They don't have uh, fantastic temperature regulation above a certain temperature, and so they've just been falling out of the trees and kind of littering the landscape like discarded little umbrellas. So shit's getting weird um that's a wonderfully cheerful way to start the podcast isn't it i'm going to have to remember that for future reference don't tell everyone doomsday is arriving at the start of a podcast but as usual of course we've got the richard rule which means i've got to talk about the movies for 15 minutes into the podcast i've still got a little time yet so i probably should look at what i've been watching Yeah, I found a few free musical stings there to just kind of break up the little bits I'm talking about, so I may well start using those. So what have I been watching? Uh, I watched an eight-episode series on Netflix called Russian Doll, starring Natasha Lyonne, who plays a kind of mid-30s computer programmer living in New York, who suddenly Groundhog Day. She gets killed and then relives a day. The the death is an accident. It isn't kind of like a happy death day kind of situation. And she's got to try to figure out why she keeps dying and coming back to the same moment at her birthday party and why things keep repeating and why they keep getting stranger and stranger. kind of liked it. Uh, There's a really nice emotional explanation for why it's happening, if not a kind of scientific one or or a kind of metaphysical one. But it's got a nice supporting cast as well. Elizabeth actually turns up. Elizabeth Ashley's been in film since the 1960s She was married to George Pappard back in the day And it's nice seeing her In the late 70s getting a kind of meaty Role uh, There are some other cool supporting actors Including Greta Lee And yeah, it kind of worked for me uh, The episodes are half an hour long So binging the whole lot Takes you about four hours It's not as big a commitment as say The Punisher or one of the other Marvel Netflix shows and it kind of works. Um, it's transgressive, it's honest, and it's a little bit emotionally raw. It kind of worked for me. And the more I think about it, having watched it a couple of days ago, the better I liked it. So you really should check out Russian Doll. Also watching the new season of Star Trek Disco, and I'm on board with it. I kind of like it. I like where it's going with the different characters, and that it's taking things in a different direction. Uh, strong rumours that this is going to be the last season of a Star Trek Disco Um, There have been some kind of rumours and and kind of oblique mentions by various cast members about it. I hope not, but uh, given the fact that uh, Paramount is now doing a Star Trek series kind of like Old Man Logan, instead of Old Man Logan, of course, it's Old Man Picard starring Patrick Stewart. So we'll see where they go with that. They may well be ditching Star Trek Disco in order to play uh, with Picard's sandbox a little bit more. But I do like Star Trek Disco, I like the way it went, I like the fact that you have that constant dynamic tension between the utopia of the Federation and the kind of hierarchical tribal Klingons, plus yeah, the alternate universe thing, the um, evil alternate universe stuff in series one, which kind of has certain repercussions in series two, but it's not a major theme in it. Uh, Yeah, it kind of works for me, I love the special effects, I love the characters, so I'm on board for that one, and I'll be a little bit sad should it end with that second season. For the ABC Radio gig this year, I'm doing it weekly instead of fortnightly, which is a little bit more of a challenge and a little bit more fun as well, and so I did this last week, we did two movies, first one I revisited Lawrence of Arabia, David Lean's classic, and because I'm doing video editing and understanding more about the mechanics and and the kind of drilling down of film creation, just seeing David Lean's framing and um, the use of lenses and the use of deep focus and the use of shallow focus and all that kind of other stuff, it made it a whole new experience for me. This is the second time I've watched Lawrence of Arabia, the first time I did it for the podcast. And I really enjoyed it this time a lot more because I knew more about the creative process involved in just putting an image, a moving image on a screen. And so I'm going to keep up with the YouTube videos. If nothing else, it's going to inform and deepen my understanding and hopefully my communication about cinema in general by doing that. So there's always a plus, to do, more than one plus to doing something creative. And this is something I've definitely found with this. But if you haven't seen Lawrence of Arabia, or you haven't seen it for a few years, visit it. Revisit it. You're going to enjoy it. Um, Then I watched um, Alfonso Cuaron's Roma, which is up for a shitload of Academy Awards this year, and is the first time that a movie, which pretty much almost entirely premiered on a streaming service, in this case Netflix, has been up for this many gongs. Uh, It's about... Um, partly about Cuarón's childhood Cuarón, sorry, his childhood in 1970s um, Mexico City and it focuses on the servant in a family which is going through some troubles and her life as it relates to the family there's look. I'm I'm not going to spoil it by telling you too much about it I think that if you haven't seen it and you've got Netflix, check it out Um, you're going to have to watch it closely. It's not one of those movies that you can do while you're web browsing and trolling people on Facebook. You've really got to pay attention to it. But I think you'll be well rewarded if you do. then went on to my Amazon Prime, and I found out that number 96, the movie, was out on um, Amazon Prime. Now, this was based on a 1970s television show, which was crazily popular in my youth. Um, It's corny and silly and kind of even politically incorrect at times these days, but it did have a lot of nudity in it, which is always a plus for a 1970s movie, based on a TV series, they went crazy cheap when they made it though and filmed it on 16mm blown up to 35 and so the images are a little bit um, grainy and uh, yeah, the dialogue is just as corny as it was on the TV series, but it's got a certain nostalgic frisson about it for those of us who grew up with it um then I watched an Australian documentary on the flicks of Net and it's called Miso Hungry. Now that isn't a racist term, particularly because Miso is spelled M I S O. And it's about an Australian filmmaker called Craig Anderson who did a lot of good stuff on TV and still does. Um he was behind Double the Fist, which was a comedy thing that um the ABC did a while back, and he's also worked on TV series like Black Comedy, which is the indigenous comedy show that's ongoing on the national broadcaster, and he it's a documentary about him, and he's quite overweight and had a really bad lifestyle choices, him travelling to Japan to learn why Japanese people are skinnier than Australian people, and he start, starts going on to a Japanese diet. Healthy, lots of exercise, lots of less carbs, you know, just basically... Um, dealing with himself a lot better, and it's kind of an interesting journey of Craig going there, talking to various people. He talks to a Buddhist monk, he talks to um, a Hawaiian Japanese sumo wrestler, and a, a bunch of other people, and just kind of learns how to look after himself a lot better. It's um, funny at times. It's nicely shot as well because, of course, he is a filmmaker, and he and his friends who put it together know their way around a camera so they're much better than I am at that sort of thing but it kind of works and it's um yeah it's not spectacularly wonderful documentary but it is a very personal and honest one and I'm kind of getting in the mood at the moment for movies and documentaries which are about somebody searching for a better life and it's very much what Craig Anderson did with Me So Hungry um, you should check it out if it's on your Netflix queue because apart from it anticipating my trip and giving me ideas for what I want to do while we are in Japan, um, it's a, a nice little documentary. Speaking of which, um, we've got everything locked down for Japan. We've got the um, tra- trail pa- train passes for a week. We've got the hotels booked down. We've got travel insurance locked in. Apparently we get 46 kilos of luggage which is kind of cool and so I'm looking forward to buying a lot of things that I don't need while we're over there and we're coming up on the 15 minute mark so it's time to talk about the first of the two movies The Giver* from 1991 starring Mark Hamill and a bunch of other people which is also known as Mutronics the movie so I'm going to play the trailer for that and then talk about why it's a bit of fun.
1: At the beginning of time, aliens came to the earth to create the ultimate organic weapon. They created mankind. By planting a special gene into man, they created the zoonoids, humans who can change at will into super monster soldiers. Eons later, the zoonoid leader, called the Zoa Lord has awakened and formed the Kronos Corporation to further develop the zoonoid technology for world domination. Among the alien remains was found the unit, a bio-boosted alien armor. Worn by the aliens, it serves as an ordinary shield. If the wearer is human, it increases his natural powers a hundredfold. He becomes the diver. But how to activate it remains a mystery. Dr. Tetsu Segawa, a research scientist at Kronos, senses danger if this unit is activated by the Zoa Lord. Now the doctor has stolen it and is on the run.
0: Yeah, I couldn't find an English language trailer to it. So that's the intro to Guyver, the Guyver from 1991. The only ones I could find were either in Spanish, Argentinian Spanish, or in German, which I know would be great for our good friend Armin, but for the rest of you, it might leave you a little bit wandering. So that's basically the setup for the series. It's based on an earlier anime, which I watched before I ever watched this movie, back in the 1990s when I would have seen it on Weekly Rental VHS. And through Rather Subterranean means, I've actually found the whole series of the anime, which I've got on the hard drive and I'm waiting to binge when the mood takes me. So I may actually take it to Japan with me. I can put it onto the laptop, yeah. But anyway, the Guyver is kind of third generation in a sense because there was um, a manga published in 1986, I think it is. Yeah, 1986 it was written by a guy called Yoshiki Takaya and uh, it started out being called Bio Booster Armour Giver, and was uh, let's have a look here I'm just kind of scrolling through because I'm learning on the hop here Um, let's see there were 32 volumes of it that's not too bad at all for any manga of the time but people just love the stuff I mean even my One Punch Man at the moment I've got 9 volumes of it and there are at least that many more again So once you go down the rabbit hole of manga collecting, particularly with a company that publishes them like Shonen Jump, you're going to spend a lot of money. But uh, I wonder if I'm finding, um, actually after watching this, I'm really anxious to see if I can find any Guyver merch while I'm in Japan. Probably be crazy expensive because like any pop cultural thing, the older it gets, the more expensive it becomes to acquire as the decades go on. But I'm going to give it a go anyway. But, um, oh, yeah, I really like Giver. I like the armor design with the big backward horn on the head and the um, elbow backward-leaning um, spikes sticking out of it. It's very kind of cyberpunky in its own way, but it's also biopunk as well. And uh, the, the, basically, basically the story is that the Giver unit gets picked up by a guy in the movie's case. The guy is generic name, generic name, because they're always called something like that. Um, Sean Barker, played by an actor called Jack Armstrong, and he doesn't know what it is, and then he gets beaten up on by a bunch of street thugs because that's what street thugs did in early 1990s cinema, and accidentally ends up face down on the guy of a unit, which then applies itself to him. It wraps around his head, wraps around his body. It then inserts itself in his body with a couple of kind of um, stoma at the back of his neck from which the gaver unit can emerge and wrap him in armor as the plot line requires. That's the story and a whole bunch of zoonoid kind of um, mutants led by David Gale from Reanimator as a guy called Fulton Balkus, which is Fulton Balkus, sorry which is a bit of a mouthful of a name. It has absolutely no youth at all. Tries to re- reacquire the guy of a unit because if they get it and they put it on, they become mega super uh, human and take over the world, blah, 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 blah. Mark Hamill's there for a while at a time when he was at a very career low playing a guy called Max Reed, who is the, one of the more unlikely looking CIA agents of cinema history because he's dressed in... Kind of late nineteen eighties, early nineteen nineties, casual with you know like the suit jacket with the rolled up sleeves. He's got a mustache on which doesn't suit him at all. It's kind of like oh yes, this guy must be doing Movember kind of mustache. Um, and he's kind of he actually does a reasonable job of the acting in this one, I'm trying to break away from the stereotyping of the Lucas years. And so he kind of does a slightly hard boiled persona with a little touch of Peter Falk in there for good measure. So he's kind of amusing in there. And then we've got the villains. Uh, there's a couple of interesting people in the villains in this movie, one of whom is called Liska, played by Michael Berryman. Now, anybody who knows cult movies knows Michael Berryman. Very distinctive look because of certain uh, genetic conditions that the actor has. In fact, the um, the condition is called hypohydriotic... Let me start again. Hypo hydrotic ectodermal dysplasia, which is a rare condition which leaves a person with no sweat glands, hair, or fingernails. And you do see that Michael Berryman doesn't have fingernails in this movie. Uh, Really unusual physical appearance. He's got an elongated head. He was made for this kind of a movie. And, of course, he started out in uh, 1977 with The Hills Have Eyes. Before that, he was in a George Powell movie, Doc Savage, Man of Bronze playing, I think, an undertaker or a, a, um, a coroner or something like that in there. Really unusual look. He was in um, One Flew Over the, the Cooker's Nest as well with we Science, My Science Project, which is another favorite of mine. And he's still acting at the moment. Uh, actually, he's a Facebook friend of mine. And I really like him for the simple reason, and again, this is entirely personal, that he's a bit of a lefty. He's, um, he doesn't like Trump at all which is kind of cool and I like the fact that actors are willing to speak out about this kind of thing and from all reports from the people I know who have met him he's a very lovely guy but he does have that look that makes him suitable for playing freakish characters in movies so he's turned a, a negative into a positive by parlaying this thing into a 40 year career and I also like the fact that Michael Berryman's, Berryman's voice is contrary to his appearance as well He's got a soft-spoken voice in the same way that Boris Karloff's voice was very soft-spoken and polite. In this movie in particular, even when he's kind of ranting and raving, Michael Berryman's kind of mellowy voice makes the character really work well. The other interesting guy in this one, as far as the um, support characters are concerned, is Jimmy Walker, uh, the actor-comedian who people remember most for being in good times back in the 1970s. Again, he was having a career low. And he plays another one of the villains. Now, the movie didn't have an unreasonable budget for a New Line Cinema release at the time. It was $3 bucks, which, again, is not um, really generous, but every cent is up there on the screen. It was directed by Screaming Mad George and Steve Wang. Now, Screaming Mad George, we know from probably the career height of his um, stuff would have been Society in 1989. I talked about Society with um, Jay Bauman and Mike White on the Projection Booth podcast. And the physical effects work that Screaming Mad George did on um, Society and indeed in uh, The Guyver is first rate. I mean, they, these guys took physical effects to a surreal and incredibly artistically wonderful level and in this one, you need that. First off, you need to make the Guyver suit realistic, and it is. It's a, a full-body prosthesis. It's got certain things that it does. Uh, there are a couple of vents down around the mouth area of the Guyver suit that vent steam. Uh, there are a couple of balls on the top of the scalp on either side which go backwards as well to give him vision in the, behind him, uh, and there are the retractable uh, spikes on coming out of his elbows. So there are a lot of things to do just on the one suit. Then on top of that, you've got all of the monster effects for the zoonoids, including transformation effects as well, and transformation effects for the Gyver suit. So they did a ton of work on this one, and on a three million budget, it really does show well. The... Um, The gaiva suit works particularly well, but they had to go crazy outrageous with the zoonoid costumes because that's very much consistent with the anime and with the manga before that. So they wanted to keep the same look because they were working in collaboration with the Japanese company that had the rights to this, which was um, Shochiku Films. So they had to kind of stay within certain limitations that the uh, rights holders held them to but it really works well. The Guyver suit works well, and it also seems to be made in such a way that the actor, and I think it's pretty much most of the stuff inside the Guyver suit would have been a stunt actor because of the physical moves required of the fight scenes. Um, There's there's enough freedom in the suit for the uh, stunt actor to move really well, Uh, and even though it does seem to be kind of basically an armour, it flows well, it works well, and it's consistent with what I've seen of I haven't seen the manga but of the anime it does everything that the anime suit does and that's you know kind of a really impressive piece of work now as far as the zoonoids were concerned they're a little more outrageous looking you've got to remember that um, this is the era of Rusuka doji and all those sorts of movies which had lots of tentacle effects and really gross, grotesque monsters in them and the zoonoids are very much that in this movie and yet the, they've also got to move in such a way that the uh, the suits that the actors are in or even, I think most of them would have been stunt actors they'd be able to physically synchronise with the actors' voices coming out, supposedly coming out of these monsters and that's sometimes not an easy thing to do now, this, of course, wasn't a big movie. It wasn't a fantastically successful movie. But it's one that a lot of people have a lot of fondness for. I'm trying to find out how much it made. Just give me a few seconds. No, I've got nothing on that. Uh, it's one of those things that hasn't been released to the public. So I also get a little role in this one for Geoffrey Combs, who played Herbert West, of course, in Reanimator, along with David Gale. His character in this one is called Dr. Reese, which is a little bit of an homage to Herbert West. Though he's not given terribly much to do in this one, which is a little bit of a shame. In IMDb, there are over 50 creature effects in this movie, which is, again, very, very impressive. And uh, the movie was produced by Brian Usner as well. I also really like the score on this one by a guy called Matthew Morse, because it's kind of right in the centre of that synthy 1980s, 1990s, direct-to-VHS almost score. Um, It's kind of one of those things when you hear it, you go, okay, that's definitely a cult film, a genre film of some kind, from, say, between 1985 to about 1993. It's not a a cliche in a sense, it's not stereotypical, but it's got very much that feel of those movies at the time where they didn't have a lot of money to pay up for orchestras So they get one creative uh, composer with a synthesizer and let him do the lot. So it's very much in that. There are other movies that have got that as well. I mean, The Jitters has got it to a certain extent and pretty much anything New Line did at this time and as well as things like the whole lot of movies that Charles Band did at the time have a lot of that same feel about them. There was a sequel to the movie as well, Guy of a Dark Hero which I haven't seen in a long time. I really should revisit that one amongst all the other things I've got to do in the next couple of weeks and just go over that. But I'm really more inclined and I want to watch the anime because I like the original Guyver anime. It was shown here on TV, I think, at some stage and then uh, was available to a certain extent on VHS. But the Guyver anime, I think, is a lot more outrageous and a lot more fun than these two movies are, to be honest with you. Though this one, of course, has features of interest. The other thing about this movie, which kind of makes it stand out beyond anything else, is this is the only movie you're going to see Mark Hamill turn into a dying cockroach monster. I mean, it's a bit of an outrageous concept, but they ran with it. Part of this, uh, the practical effects they use are Mark Hamill's head, and some of them are a um, fake Mark Hamill head, which turns into a flattened cockroach head. But I kind of like the audacity of doing that. Yeah, let's get let loose Wilker, and we'll go Kafka on his ass and turn him into a cockroach. You've got to love that kind of thing. And the audacity of the filmmakers to do that. But the person who kind of gets the best acting chops in this one is probably David Gale playing the main villain because he's, just, he's got a scary set of teeth, that guy. He had, he had scary teeth. They were like Mahjong tiles. Um, And he overacts the fuck. Both of these movies I'm going to talk about today have some overacting in it. And there's a certain kind of movie that benefits rather than is diminished by judicious overacting. And David Gale definitely does that in this one. It's like he knows exactly what's required and he's willing to go there and drink 17 cups of coffee and just go with it. It's very much got that feel about it. And it enhances the movie. But I kind of like these movies at this time. I really should revisit more of them than I do. Though I have made a bit of a commitment this year to watch as many films I haven't seen before as possible. Because I've looked over my past few years on Letterboxd. And there have been a lot of repeat views. And I really want to move on to the next thing. I think that as a movie viewer and kind of half-assed movie reviewer, I really do need to step outside my comfort zone a bit more, see some new stuff I haven't seen before, see some older stuff I haven't seen before, and there's a fair whack of that that is available to me. But I still want to leave room to be able to revisit movies like this that I haven't seen in decades and just kind of accept them as being a part of the time of which they are a part and to just kind of let them be what they are and to appreciate them at that level you can get hypercritical about them you can tear them apart it's so easy to do there's such a, a kind of fragile construct in that way that it's easy to rip shit on these kind of movies but what I do try to do with them is to take the bits I like out of them and go yeah okay it, there's all that other shit in there but i like these things about it and I think that watching them as a movie of their time is the way to do it. You've got to kind of step back a little bit and step back in time a little bit when you watch this sort of film to fully appreciate them. So there's not too much else to say about The Gyver except watch it if you haven't seen it for a while or you haven't seen it. It's a bit of fun. It's not to be taken seriously. It's got some nice physical effects with all the KY gel gooeyness of a 1990s practical effects movie of a certain type which is always great i mean yeah they couldn't show blood and guts quite as much and they couldn't do it as well as they wanted to so what they did was they had like green jelly and slime and green jelly and slime is part and parcel of this kind of film so anyway i'm going to take a break now i'm going to get back going to talk about class of 1999
2: (laughs)
1: That fabulous thrill
2: that wonderful day the earth stood still you appeared in a halo of heavenly light were you real really real or just a meteorite from outer space you had three eyes and half a face and oh that phosphorescent then were you animal or vegetable woman? mineral you came from outer space you ran smack into my embrace and then i fell beneath your sway when you hit me with your cyclotronic ray i got lost in the mist and the moment we kissed i just disintegrated you dissolved into tears. It took forty light years, and you evaporated. You left without a trace. I guess you couldn't stand the pace. What magic did you bring from? Wherever did you spring from? You fascinating thing from outer space. Nine, eight, seven, six, five, four, three, two, one. Last off to venus because they have never seen us so we'll write a song to venus on the way v is for the rile bean we all admire and dedicate to the outer time to see the beam but not to file the crop in the crane. he is be for the whole space gonna be scraped that every man to profit to begin that very same french way of ah, the old. n name. is for the hail fall that overlooks but here before, what is it that will not reflect the overinth of all time. Forever. And you is for the, the other thing that all the first oh, uh, you the thing that mock the means of the spray of flingburgers. But at all to take off. S the, is for the ha the thing we in slime, all tenacious over flam that endangers the green of all time. What a perfect place to have a ball. Put them all together. They spell Texas. A word that simply means The cryo being we all admire And dedicate to the Albatons And not to the prophet May fringe away the I got the lost in the, God, the, the And the moment we kissed oh, I just you gonna wait? disintegrated You're not gonna you wait? dissolved into tears ah. into poorly light years And <laughs> you evaporated You left without a trace I guess you couldn't stand the pace What magic did you bring from? Wherever did you spring from? really want to sing a fascinating thing from outer space.
0: That was the Kirby Stone 4 with You Came From Outer Space because this is a podcast about science fiction, horror and fantasy. So let's take a look at Class of 1999. Directed by Mark L. Lester. It's a sequel, apparently, to his 1982 film, The Class, Class of 1984, which had Perry King in it. it was more like Death Wish in a school kind of thing, rather than a straight-out horror science fiction movie, which Class of 1999 is. It's a 1990 movie, so any movie that posits a future less than 300 years into the future, He's going to fuck it up. And this one definitely did, mostly from a wardrobe point of view. I lived through 1999 and there were very few teenagers going around in 1999 wearing rainbow colored leggings and having and having circuit board earrings hanging off their earlobes. Nonetheless, that's what we get in class of 1999, which is very, very funny in many different ways. According to the timeline of the series, in the 1990s, schools became incredibly violent and it spiralled out of control. So most major cities ended up being taken over by youth gangs, shutting down chunks of the town, including schools. So schools became what's known as free fire zones because nobody could control them because apparently America has a military that was busy fighting wars overseas. So much so, in fact, that they ended up creating a whole bunch of Terminator-like war robots. Then suddenly, because of no really good reason, the Department of Education Defence, which is what the Education Department of America in, became in this movie, decided what they were going to do is get some Terminator-type robots and turn them into school teachers to see if they can do some urban pacification of the school system. So they start in Seattle. Dr. Bob Forrest, played by Stacy Keach, wearing a flat-top silver mullet wig with silver eyeballs to match, decides that he's going to bring three of these Terminators into a school, and he's reprogrammed them so everything will be both hunky and dory. Doesn't quite work out like that. The three teachers, the school coach Mr. Bryles, the history teacher Mr. Harden, and the chemistry teacher Miss Connors, are robots, but nobody in the school system. Apart from the school principal, played by Malcolm McDowell, know this. By the way, Malcolm McDowell worked on this movie for two days, and if you watch the movie, his American accent is really bad. It's the kind of mirror image of Dick Van Dyke's Cockney accent in Mary Poppins. It's that bad. Um, he was catching a check unashamedly, but it's Malcolm, Malcolm McDowell, so we'll forgive him anything. Now, the three teachers are played by John P. Ryan, who plays the history teacher, uh, Mr. Harden. John P. Ryan, you might remember, played the father in the original Larry Cohen, It's a Live movie. Good character, solid as hell, over acts to fuck in this movie and i love it because if you're playing a killer robot that goes off script then you're not gonna underplay it you're really going to go balls to the wall and just play it like a total fucking nutcase and john p ryan does this he really goes to town with this one and he's the most valuable player in the movie for that very simple reason he gets to do lots of cool killing of teenagers in amusing ways. Actor Patrick Kilpatrick, who you'll recognise his face when you see him, plays a sports coach, and he doesn't kind of overdo it in quite the same way that John P. Ryan does, but he does a pretty reasonable job of playing um, a skirt, Terminator as a school teacher. Working under the extra burden of his name, Patrick Kilpatrick is a kind of generic name that nobody's going to remember. It's like that old joke about the, gay Scottish guys Walter Fitzpatrick and Patrick Fitzwalter The chemistry teacher is played by Pam Greer Now this was a kind of not a particularly good time in Pam Greer's life She'd had stage 4 cervical cancer and this is her first rollback from having dealt with that so she does a pretty good job, but still she's kind of not entirely back in gear. And she's still a few years away from Jackie Brown and those other career revival things, Escape from L.A., that really kind of brought us back the Pam Grier we knew and loved from earlier decades. Nonetheless, having her in there is really interesting, and Pam Grier as a Terminator is definitely a selling point for any particular movie. That brings me to the problem with this movie. The first part of the movie is set up to show the juvenile delinquents as juvenile delinquents and the way that they've taken over the town. They've gone totally teenage mad, max on Seattle. They're a bunch of assholes. Um, Cody Cobb, the main protagonist played by Bradley Gregg, has just got out of prison and he's trying to keep his nose clean. But his little brother... um, Angel, played by Joshua John Miller, is a total asshole. His older brother, Sonny, played by Darren E. Burroughs, who was in Northern Exposure, is an asshole. His mother's an asshole. Every other kid in the school, including Hector, played by James Medina, who ends up working alongside Cody to beat the Terminators, is an asshole. So there's a limited amount of empathy we can have for what are ostensibly the protagonists in this um, movie. And that's maybe a weakness of the script. They really needed to kind of give it another run through, pay out 10 grand to get a script doctor to look at it, something to kind of give it that little bit because you can't really set up the whole kind of young people in the movie as total pricks and assholes and self-serving sociopaths and then expect us to care when the teachers start going totally poor cursey on them. It's a big flaw in this movie, which is, you don't care about the protagonists. And that annoys me because the screenwriting 101. Uh, Having said that, living aside the fact that that differentiation between the goodies and the baddies, even if you have complex and nuanced baddies, which you definitely don't do in this movie, you do have to have a line between them. Go, okay, well, these are our antagonists. These are our protagonists. And we know where the line is, even if certain characters blur the line we know where it is and we know what it is we know who we're supposed to cheer for and we want some villains that have got a little meat on the bone as well there are little hints of good things here too as well i should mention before i get on to the hints of good things john p ryan as a teacher spanking students who misbehave leather-clad punk students is totally weird and wonderful in a fucked up completely fucked up way but the, the the little hints of interesting things are the fact that these teachers, as robots, are evolving. They're rewriting their own software. They're going off course because the war machines they previously were were designed to adapt to circumstance. So when certain circumstances don't result in the teachers teaching the students, they decide to go totally off script and find new ways of handling the students, which is basically to kill them. So uh, that's kind of cool. Um, We have a couple of street gangs as well. The Blackhearts versus the Razorheads. I don't know whether that's a David Lynch reference or not. But I think the names are a bit fucking wussy, to be honest with you. If you're going to give your street gang a name... I mean you can call them eyeball suckers, you could call them all sorts of weird and wonderful things. To me, black hearts versus razor heads isn't the kind of name that street gangs give themselves. They tend to give themselves grandiose names like, you know, the urban kings. They they tend to kind of elevate themselves into being something special. They don't talk about their hearts and their heads and razors and black black hearts are probably racist as well, come to think of it. Give me five minutes with a fucking whiteboard and I'll think of better names than that. So the, I think that the script needs a lot of work. But there's a lot wrong with this script that kind of weakens it. This could have been a cult classic in so many ways, and it just isn't. And that's kind of disappointing because the idea of teachers as Terminators has a lot of um, potential to it. One of those things where you can run with it, you can find ways to make it work, by the way, there was a sequel, a director video sequel called Class of 1999 2 The Substitute. Now I'm going to find out a little bit about that for you. Let's see who was in that one. Nick Cassavetes was in it. Somebody called Sasha Mitchell. Caitlin Delaney. Um, nobody else famous, really, because they don't get a um, Wikipedia listing. Uh, it was in Oregon rather than in Seattle, in Washington, apparently. Basically, Substitute Teacher is a, a military android. And yeah, you know, shit gets serious. 87 minutes, directed by somebody called Spiro Rosatos, who is so regarded in the industry that he doesn't have a Wikipedia page either. So, just to summarise a little bit, how would I improve this film? Make a clear demarcation line between the students and the teachers. If I was redoing really it, let's just try. Let's just do a hypothetical because I'm going to play with this one. If I was doing it, here's what I'd do. 1999, nine years in the future. America is a religious dictatorship and the kids are secular. And so the religious organization, the handmaid's tailed bastards who are running America, decide that they're going to put these military androids into schools to try to make the kids religious and to try to make God's law the law of the school. Then you've got something to play with. Have one of the teachers as a protagonist, a secular teacher in a religious school, who's kind of closeted, secular. Have him be an ally to certain students that he knows have got potential and he knows are doing the right thing and work it through that way. You can still have all the action sequences. You can have Pam Greer being machine-gunned so the green KY jelly pours out of a body. You can get um, John P. Ryan doing all the nasty things to students. You can get Patrick Fitzpatrick doing the nasty things to students. You can get the pitch battle at the end between the androids and the street gangs who all seem to have access to some quite high level military technology, including grenade launchers and SMGs galore. You have the big battle. And then it's discovered that the teacher who is sympathetic is also an android, but has been programmed by secular a secular underground. How's that sound? This shit would be great. I would watch this movie. I would make this movie if somebody would give me $50 million and a whole bunch of really creative people. This movie is weak because it doesn't think through its premise. It wants to do the explosions. It has a cool, high concept to start with, but it doesn't run with it enough. And that's the downside. It really doesn't take it where it needs to go. And it doesn't understand that it doesn't cost money to lift a project like this above the ordinary, it just takes a little bit of dedication and a good script, and it all comes down to a good script, and this movie, even though it does have the high concept, it has the weirdness of Stacy Keach with a rat tail mullet, it has the weirdness of having Malcolm McDowell in there just because he's Malcolm McDowell, you got John P. Ryan in there, Pam Greer and if you have Pam Greer in an exploitation movie of any kind, the first thing I would think of to do would be to give her some really great taking-no-shit dialogue. This is Pam Greer, the woman who castrated Peter Brown in Foxy Brown and sent his genitals to his girlfriend. You want something really rock-solid for Pam Greer to do in this kind of movie, even though she was recovering from a life-threatening illness. Pam Greer can put across a line like that in a sleep. But again, there are some virtues in here. Each one of the killer teachers has a different weapon. Pam Greer has one arm that turns into a flamethrower. Great there. Patrick Kilpatrick has a rocket launcher kind of thing in his arm. And um, Ryan, John P. Ryan, has a robot claw with a drill in the middle of it so the claw can grip a kid's head and then the drill just basically goes right through his brain. They're things that are cool. They're things you could keep in this movie. It's just that the script lets it down. You you know, you've got those cool high-concept... Ideas, you've got the physical effects that really go well, and the fake arms work really well uh, in the costuming that they give the character actors. In the sense that, with their arms strapped behind their back, the prosthetic arms do look like they're their real arms rather than prostheses. And again, this was this was before they did green screen on these kind of things. It was all purely physical effects, and I think that maybe with a movie of this budget and time constraints and all the other things, you've got to balance. Getting the physical effects right was more of an emphasis for the makers of the film than getting the script right, and that kind of sucks. Let's take a look at the Terminator. Everybody remembers the great dialogue. Everybody remembers Arnie. Everybody remembers the point of view from the from the Terminator side of things. You know, all of that kind of stuff. People forget how ropey the stop-motion animation is and how some of the scenes don't quite work but they remember the cool stuff and it's all down to the script. So Class of 1999 forgets that and unfortunately it's a lesser film because of it. You really do need a good script and you need to understand in depth the virtue of the actors you're hiring and what kind of stuff plays well with them and what kind of stuff they can really put across to maximum emphasis. It's the reason why in a lot of Westerns and a lot of kind of auteur directors and even people like John Ford, they kept getting the same actors to work with them because they knew what the actor was really good at. They could write for that and they knew which actors were reliable and would put it across well. Uh, Tons of people did it. Peckinpah did it. John Ford did it. John Sturgis did it to a certain extent, even though he was a bit of a studio guy. As well, Hitchcock did it with character actors on occasion, particularly English actors with whom he'd worked in other areas and actors he had worked with in the Alfred Hitchcock Presents TV series. You find people who are great and reliable. You get them in. The character actors they have been doing this shit for 40 years and you get them to nail this stuff. i am off on a bit of a rant with this one, haven't I? Ah, oh, well, never mind. Maybe it's... Um, the warm weather. Maybe I'm a bit dehydrated. But to just kind of finalise the podcast and wrap the two movies together I love the physical effects in both movies. I love that kind of the fact that you know it's all made out of latex rubber and condoms full of KY jelly and dyed bits of goo but I love the fact that they made them as realistic as they did. They weren't photorealistic in a lot of cases. The facial masks and all the other bits and pieces. But These guys were perfecting what they do and doing it as well as they possibly could and just playing with their imaginations. In movies like The Giver, and like Class of 1999, probably the main virtues of them are the effects technicians. I've got a lot of time for that. You know, watching Rick Baker, old age makeup, David Bowie, or giving us semi-realistic apes in greystoke dick smith doing the old age makeup on dustin hoffman in little big man i I just love that stuff i love state-of-the-art stuff and i like people who even at the second tier level of people like screaming mad george and all those kind of guys they really did love what they do and they made it visually interesting maybe i'm overthinking the script that's another possibility too but I kind of like to have a thinking script in a way. I like the idea of taking a movie where the script is a bit ropey and doing a thought experiment on how I'd improve it and kind of you know do that little bit of fun stuff. You can even do it with a, a classic film. How would you improve a Star Wars movie, for instance? I'm not dissing Star Wars. Please don't think I am. But there's always a lot of speculation about what would have worked better than the stuff we see on the screen. And yes, it is people who can't do it themselves because they're not in the industry or whatever reason, second-guessing it. But I also think there's an aspect of you trying to say what would have worked better than what you saw on the screen because you wanted it to be better. You've got that passion to kind of, by sheer telepathic will, help these guys make better films. And you get it with TV series as well. Uh, Maybe next time I get a guest on board, one of the things I should put up as one of the premises of the podcast is how would you have made this movie better? What would you have changed to improve this film and to make it better than it is? Even if it's a great film, what would you do differently? I think there's a kind of interesting speculation you can make if you get the right imaginative people on board to do that so I'm going to think that a little bit more because that's my big takeaway from this particular episode of the podcast is that passion we have for you know we kind of like what we see but we just wish it was a little bit better we want it to be better and we think of ways it could be better it's not a not dissing the filmmakers at all when you do that I don't think I think it's the fact that you're invested enough to put in a little bit of mental energy into kind of thinking about it so on that note of what the fuck I'm going to leave the podcast here um thank you for listening I will try to get these out just on time this one was a little bit late because I've done this weird thing at the moment and I'm going to leave this for the end of the podcast I've given up foods with extra sugar in them because they just make me feel a bit off I've had my sugars checked and I'm not diabetic or pre-diabetic as far as I know But I really wanted to eat less sugar than I've been eating. And in doing that, it has knocked my energy levels down just a bit. And so that's why this is a few days later. I just wanted to get back on my kind of biochemical feet before I did the podcast. So thank you for listening. Thanks again to the Patreon subscribers who are unique and wonderful people and who have never had a lover say a bad thing about them. And to honor them, of course, we have credits in the style of movie credits at the end of the podcast. I'm also going to be putting another piece of music at the end of the podcast, just so that you get through the credits. It's like my post credit sequences that the Marvel movies and the DC movies and every other second fucking movie these days has. So take care of yourselves. Watch good movies. Watch bad movies. Keep watching this, guys. I just saw the teaser trailer from the Super Bowl on the Jordan Peele Twilight Zone. And I'm enthusiastic about that. There's also been a trailer for Avengers Endgame just came out during the Super Bowl, which gives us a bit of background about the post-Snap Earth, which is kind of cool. You should check that one out. So there's lots of stuff in 2019 to talk about in the podcast. So keep watching this, guys. And I will be back again soon with another Paleo Cinema podcast. I'm actually doing two Don Siegel movies. So that's something to look forward to. And here are the credits. Take care of yourselves. Here are the credits for Paleo Cinema Podcast and Martian Driving Podcast, done in a style of movie credits to honor the people who support this podcast. Thank you to Tom, the focus puller, Sarah, the special effects technician, Ian, the caterer, Grant, the Technicolor consultant, Claire, the script doctor, Gary, the prop master, Morris, the musical director. Jan, the dialect coach. Armin, our key grip. Matt, the rattlesnake wrangler. Elaine, our scientific advisor. Julia, our casting director. Chris, our camera operator. Christopher, our gaffer. Miss Jane, our wardrobe mistress. Tansy, our foley artist. Alyssa, our location scout. Mark, our second unit director. Paul, our special makeup effects director. Tammy, the donut wrangler. Tim, our New York unit director. Rabbi Steve, our spiritual advisor. Uh, Steve Sullivan, our director of monster effects. Dylan, our goat wrangler. Eric, our set security lead. Richard H., our set photographer. Mark D., our extra. And David L., our extra kerry h who is the accountant and our newest supporter gary j who is a cgfx technician so thank you very much to all of the supporters of the podcast we really appreciate you dipping into your purses and helping out with the podcast
2: space the Martians plan to throw a
1: dance for all the human
2: race